It's been a couple of weeks for various reasons since we stopped last time. So I'm figuring I have to retrain you all. So we're in Judges and we'll be in chapter 9. But we need to sort of back up to the end of chapter 8 to get a run at this. Gideon, as you all remember, was chosen by God to clean out the Midianites who were oppressing Israel. And mostly they were cutting off north and south Israel by the Jezreel Valley, which goes from the Jordan Valley, moving then north and west. It's flat country, and it is chariot country. The Midianites were mounted probably mostly on camels, but they showed up during harvest season and exacted a mafia tithe, if you will, from the Israelites. So God raised up Gideon, and Gideon cleaned them out. And by the way, this is mostly northern Israel. Judah isn't mentioned in all this, so it's Ephraim, Manasseh, northern Israel, and so forth. Gideon was offered the job of king, and Gideon turned it down. However, Gideon did profit from the whole enterprise. Remember, he took all the gold earrings that showed up in the spoil and some other stuff and built an idol of some kind in Oprah. That became a snare to the Israelites. So we're going to pick it up at Judges 8.29. As I say, we've already done that, but this will give us a run at it. And by the way, Gideon's alternative name was Jeroboam. So Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. One of the things that Moses says of a king is that he shouldn't acquire many wives. Gideon, of course, is not a king, but I'm sort of taking this as he is obviously a very prominent guy now. He goes down to Shechem quite often. And Shechem may have been where the tabernacle was at this time. So anyway, religious and functional stuff happens down in Shechem. But Gideon lives up in the Jezreel Valley. And so he's got his 70 children, 70 sons. I don't know how many daughters. Uh, And heaven only knows how many wives he had. But you can figure a few. He found it necessary when he went down to Shechem to have a concubine down there. So Gideon is a prolific guy. I think the Bible ought to do a study on what his diet was. Uh, I don't know how old a man he was when he started on this process, but he was prolific. But anyway, the point is he's got 70, quote, legitimate sons And then he's got one son by a concubine who is going to cause a bunch of trouble. So, verse 31, And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech, which means, of course, my father is the king. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Oprah of the Abiezrites. So Oprah, at least most people think, if you'll look on the map, is in the Jezreel Valley. There's a couple of opinions of where that might be, but 
for our purposes, it works that it's in Jezreel Valley. We don't need to know exactly. So as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. This is going to be sort of the theme of tonight's vignette. One of the things that people tend to do is you tend to think that people are going to be grateful for what you do for them. And individually, that's occasionally true. But in groups, it's not. And in groups, it tends to be, what have you done for me lately? And in the case of Gideon, once he's died and no longer has direct influence, it's said here, the people of Israel turn away from God and forget him. And his son Abimelech is going to use that as an opening. So now chapter 9. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family. Remember, his mother is a concubine of Gideon in Shechem. Say again in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So, saying two things. One, remember Gideon refused to become a king. And he said, neither I nor my sons will rule over you. But again, the problem is from the perspective of Israel, you've got these 70 heirs, if you will, of Gideon, at least his name, and one of the problems with a divided leadership is it leads to bureaucracy. Anybody ever dealt with a bureaucracy? You go in to get something done, and the person that you meet says, oh, not me, you've got to go talk to him. And you go over to him or her, oh, no, you got the wrong office, and you got the wrong form, too. you got to go over here. So the idea of committee rule, if you will, is not good to begin with. So what Abimelech is doing is he's saying a couple of things. Saying one, there isn't any centralized rule here. You got this whole cloud of sons there and who knows what they're going to try and do and who knows what kind of influence they're going to try and wield. And of course they got Gideon's name behind them so that'll give them some clout. And so Abimelech says, and I also, by the way, am a son of Gideon. And furthermore, my mom, who was Gideon's concubine, is your kin. So you would have then somebody who's your kin, a single point of contact or a single ruling person. Big advantage all the way around. In verse 3, and his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. In other words, Gideon family is up north in the Jezreel Valley. Abimelech's family is right here in town. So he's our family. He's also a son of Gideon. Looks like a good deal to us. Verse 4. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Balbareth. Balbareth, remember, is a pagan god. 
They gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Balbareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. Went out and assembled himself a biker gang. The Bible does not think highly of these folks. In verse 5, he went to his father's house in Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar in Shechem. So what Abimelech is doing is cleaning out potential competition. The comment was, that's what we have now with Black Lives Matter and Antifa. Slightly different. I will suggest to you that if things were to play out as they did in Russia, God forbid, Black Lives Matter and Antifa would be the ones slaughtered in the Lubyanka. They are the revolutionaries, and if the revolution ever takes hold, those are the ones that are going to be slaughtered because they're the ones who are dangerous when their dreams are not realized. They're rioting because they have this dream and this vision. And it's a dream and a vision that the thing they want to install cannot match. So the last thing the people who would be in power want is these disillusioned revolutionaries who look around and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, this isn't what we were promised, and then start another revolution. So those people are the first ones to go. And there isn't anything out of the ordinary about this. This is the way people have behaved ever since biblical times. And they continue to behave that way. That's why the Bible is such a wonderful set of case studies, because we haven't changed. So I'm at verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. So you all know Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the two mountains that are on either side of Shechem. And that's where Joshua brought the tribes, half of them on Gerizim and half on Medieval, and they pronounced the curses back and forth if you didn't follow the law, and with the Levites down in the middle. So what Jotham is about to do is tell a parable. When it was told to Jotham, he went out and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. They said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit, and hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So the parable here is obvious. And it applies to today. The way we describe it is don't elect somebody president who really, really wants it. 
what you want to do is elect somebody as president or mayor or whatever who isn't hungry for power. And so they go and ask the productive trees or the productive plants come rule over. And these guys say, wait a minute, no, I'm, I'm busy. I've got real productive work to do. I'm providing oil, I'm providing wine, I'm providing food. I don't have time to leave that, which is really important, in order to come and rule over you guys. The bramble has no such problem because the bramble doesn't do anything useful. Furthermore, says, take refuge in my shade. I don't know if you have ever been in brambles, but they don't provide a lot of shade. I spent a lot of time wandering around the woods in the south when I was in the army, usually at night. So I'm wandering around the woods, and they have what they call wait-a-minute vines, which are brambles. And what they are is long vines with thorns. And you run into them, and you wait a minute, because you've got to stop, and you've got to get yourself disentangled from them before you can go on. Those are brambles. And I will tell you, they don't provide any shade. So the idea of coming under the shade of the bramble, in order to understand this, you need to fast forward to Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the tree. And he dreams of a massive cedar tree. Birds in the bough and people under the shade and all that kind of stuff. And the interpretation of the dream is the tree is you. You provide a place for birds to nest. You provide shade for people to rest underneath and take shelter. So the idea of shade being something that a ruler provides for his people is a consistent metaphor. So what the bramble is saying is, come sit under my shade. And the whole point of the exercise here is a bramble doesn't give any shade. So a bramble only takes, it doesn't give. So verse 16. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech your king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. Again, sarcastic. I mean, he's obviously listing all of their unfaithfulness and lack of gratitude to the household of Gideon. So what they did is they took each man and put him down on the block and killed him on the block. And interestingly, we saw it earlier in Gideon, because remember when Gideon captures the two kings and he asks them, all right, who did you kill? And the two kings listed who they killed, and Gideon said, if you hadn't done that, I'd have set you free, but the people you killed are my relatives. So what he does is he turns to his firstborn son, and he says to his firstborn son, okay, these two kings have killed your relatives. 
take your sword and kill them. And what it says is the kid couldn't do it. The, the point there and the point here is killing somebody in the heat of battle is very different than killing somebody in cold blood. And by the way, that's the origin of the term cold blood. So in the case where you're in a battle and you're fighting and all that kind of thing and you're excited and people are trying to kill you and you're trying to kill them first, that's a very different thing than just walking up and looking at somebody whose hands are bound and has no defense and just killing them on the spot. That's cold blood. Gideon's oldest son couldn't do it. Gideon was able to do it. And that's how Jeroboam and his worthless men killed the 70 sons of Gideon. That's what it means on one stone. They took them out one at a time to whatever the place of execution was, and they killed them in cold blood. The whole point here of this exercise is that Abimelech is a cold-blooded killer. So we have this sarcastic soliloquy. It's sort of like Mark Anthony's soliloquy in Play Julius Caesar by Shakespeare. And he keeps talking about Brutus and saying, well, Brutus is an honorable man. As in, everybody soon realizes that Brutus is in fact a traitor and a betrayer. Same kind of thing going on here. Verse 20. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So the curse that he has pronounced on them is let Abimelech be the cause of the downfall of Shechem and let Shechem be the downfall of Abimelech. And we'll, of course, see that happen. So we're now down to verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. One of the things that I'm sure you all have heard is if someone will speak behind your back about someone else, he'll speak behind your back about you. You can't trust somebody who is treacherous, and that's what's going on here. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. So God is sending a contentious or evil spirit which is getting between Abimelech and Shechem, and it's sowing discord. But the spirit is being sent by God. Sort of like, I want to say Ahab is going to war, and there's a conversation in heaven. Who's going to go convince him to go to war and get killed? And a lying spirit comes up and says, I'll go. I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets, and I will send him to his death. Which always bothers people that God would send a lying spirit. My perspective on that is I am a servant of God. I am also perfectly capable of lying. So the idea that a spirit is going to go and give a false prophecy is unremarkable. 25. 
And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told to Abimelech. So the picture is here, Abimelech is in charge. He's the sovereign, if you will. He's the king. So what these guys in Shechem do is set up bandits for fun and profit. So it serves two purposes. One, of course, is they get the loot from the bandits. In other words, this is a profit-making deal. But the other thing they do is bring discredit on the king because the king is not able to provide safety to travelers on the road. So two goals here. The major goal being to discredit Abimelech as king. Minor goal is to make a buck on the deal. This was told to Abimelech. And of course, once that happens, he as the king should take action. 26. And Gaal, the son of Eben, moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. I have no idea who Gaal and Eben are. This is the only place they show up that I know of, at least according to my Bible search program. But they are of similar moral character to Abimelech and the elders of Shechem. Gaal and his relatives, I don't know how many they were, moved in and they apparently had a good line of patter because the leaders of Shechem put confidence in them. 27. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. So, new guy in town, Gaal, seems to be a better deal than Abimelech. So they throw a party in the house of their god, and in the house of their god, as they're throwing this party, they trash talk Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam, and is not Zebel his officers? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that his people are under my hand, then I will remove Abimelech, I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. All right, a couple things going on. Obviously, Gaal is sort of the music man. He comes into town. He's strutting big and trash-talking. Notice the reference to Hamor, father of Shechem. That goes back to Genesis, the rape of Dinah. When Jacob comes back into the land with his wives and children, they settle in Shechem, remember? And Dinah goes out to visit the young women of the local town. She gets scooped up by Shechem, who is the son of Hamor, who is the mayor, king, whatever, of Shechem. So he scoops her up, takes her into his home, rapes her, and then enters into negotiation with Jacob and Jacob's sons for marriage. In other words... Having scooped her up and raped her, decides he wants to keep her. And so he enters into negotiation to do that. And Levi and Simeon say, all right, we will entertain this proposal of marriage, provided all of your men get circumcised. And so they say, whew, good deal. Rich herdsman comes in, settles down around us. If we all get circumcised, we'll intermarry, we'll have access to their flocks, and this will be a good economic deal. So they all get circumcised, 
And then Simeon and Levi go in while they're all feeling sorry for themselves and slaughter all the men of the city, which ticks Jacob off something fierce. But that's what's being referred to here because all the men of Shechem were killed, but all Shechemites were not. So we're referring back to the young man Shechem who was the namesake for the town of Shechem. And what this Gaal is saying is, hey, you guys live in Shechem. Somebody descended from Habor, who is Shechem's father. Hey, if somebody like that rules over you, it's only natural. But who is this guy, Abimelech? He doesn't live around here. Actually, he does. But his dad, remember, is from up in the Jezreel Valley. So that's sort of the deal here. And he's saying... We've got a foreign ruler over us, and we need to do something about that. And then we get this bloviating. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out, which is to say, gather up all your army and come on. Let's get it on in the field because I'm going to take you on. That's trash talk because it turns out he can't do it. When Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. So Zebel is the mayor of Shechem who has been installed by Abimelech and is loyal to Abimelech. We had that a couple of paragraphs before. So when Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. True story. Now therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So, Abimelech and all his men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. Remember, Shechem is in a valley between Gerizim and Ebal. So there's hills around it and a valley down below. So Abimelech has got his force divided into four companies. And they're up in the hills. 35. And Gaal the son of Ebed went out and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. In other words, CNN, who are you going to believe, what I say or your lying eyes? CNN, by the way, has always been around too. So anyway, Zebul, who of course has caused this to happen, is trying to delay as much as possible the alls getting his forces out and getting them in order. What he wants to have happen is people to be grabbing their socks and running out all unprepared as they are hit by people who are prepared and so are unable to fight effectively. 37. Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming down from the direction of Diviner's Oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now? You who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. So 
Zebel says basically, where's your big trash talk now? Your bluff's been called. 39. And Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abel-Melech. And Abel-Melech chased him. And he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abel-Melech lived in Aruma, and Zebel drove out Gaal and his relatives so that they could not dwell in Shechem. So the rebellion in Shechem has been put down, and Abel-Melech has retired to Aruma. 42. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abel-Melech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. So he's got three companies. As the people come out in the morning, he takes two of his companies and attacks them. The third company goes around behind them and seals off the gate. 45. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt because they rebelled against him. They were behind Gaal, and they wanted to throw him off. One of the things that he knows is people with character like his can't be trusted. So what he does is he goes in and kills them all to encourage the others. 46. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of el Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. Now, the house of el remember, that is the pagan god that Shechem is worshipping. Remember when Gaal came into town first, they went out and got some grapes through a feast, and they did it in the house of baal This is a tower, obviously somewhat fortified, because everybody runs and gets inside of it. And it's also large, because there's a thousand people in it. So 48. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman. He and all the people were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them. And all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. So he's finishing the cleaning out of Shechem. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and, and that's the little gumball on the map behind me. And you can see that in relationship to Shechem. And you can see, by the way, that it's on a major trade route. So you have the central ridge route that runs or up the spine of Israel. And remember, one of the things that the Shechemites did was they set bandits up in the hills. And this would have been the trade route that they probably were being bandits on. But that's a guess. Because remember, this whole vignette started with the idea of Shechem turning against Abimelech putting out bandits, and part of the reason for putting out the bandits is to discredit Abimelech as king. In other words, this guy, he can't even enforce safety on the road. And so what I'm speculating is 
that that may have been one of the places where he got his bandits. Otherwise, going against Thebes and destroying it is just sort of a random act of violence, which I suppose is okay, but it makes more sense if you see it as part of this vignette. Do with that as you like. It is not scripture. So verse 50 again. The neighbor Melech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled into it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. So having had success with kindling a fire around a tower in Shechem, he's going to do the same thing. 53. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. He's on his way out, and all he's got left is his reputation, which is not much, but he's trying to protect him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Because remember, it said earlier, Abimelech is going to kill Shechem, and then Shechem is going to kill Abimelech, which is, by the way, part of the reason why I think this Phoebus is sort of part of the Shechem bandit thing, because that means that the prophecy has in fact indeed been fulfilled exactly. And the idea there is you destroy everything and sow it with salt because you don't want people coming back there and growing crops and starting a city up again and so forth. Typically a city is put somewhere where there's either a trade advantage because of a port or a river or roads, or there's some military advantage or both. So if you're going to take a city out that has been your enemy, what you don't want to do is have somebody rebuilding it quickly. One of the practices then is you sow the agricultural area around there with salt, and you can't do agriculture for several years until the salt finally leaches out of the soil. I know of two cases where it's happened here in Shechem, and it also happened to Carthage, and it was sort of a Oh yeah, we destroyed the place and sowed it with salt, as in, we really cleaned it out.